0: We've been in the book of Nehemiah this entire summer, and this morning, we finish it up. Today is uh, the last sermon on the book of Nehemiah. We're going to look at Nehemiah 13. And I want to give, a, I guess, a spoiler alert. It does not have a great ending. It's, it's not a Hollywood, uh, the, the credits start to roll, there's beautiful music playing, and there's a sunset. And everyone leaves feeling happy. They had a couple hours to escape, and they and they were able to watch this wonderful story. And now they're feeling better about it. Brian, our worship pastor, was over a few weeks ago, and we were watching a movie, and we found like this thriller sort of like mystery movie, and it was really good. We're watching it, and you know, it's kind of it's picking up and 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 revealing more and more. And basically, whenever you watch a movie like that, the assumption is you're gonna get an answer, right, to whoever the criminal is, or there's gonna be some sort of redemptive moment at the end of the movie, and we're sitting there, we're watching, and all of a sudden, like, it quits, like the movie ends and the credits roll. You guys ever watched a movie like this, just a bad ending with no clarity? No, like a, a no good ending, no answers? And Brian, I looked at you, are you kidding me? Like, I gave up two hours of my life to feel like this? There's something deeply annoying about a bad ending. I don't, I don't think we like bad endings. We like, we like good endings. We like uplifting endings. But Nehemiah, unfortunately, doesn't have that really great kind of final ending. I mean, to be honest, if I were writing Nehemiah which I didn't, I would end it at Nehemiah twelve forty three. It says this. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Done. End it there. there there's your Hollywood ending. The people have built, they've rebuilt the wall. The city is being rebuilt. Uh, the temple's being restored. The people have Given their lives back to God, they've repented of their sin, they have this dedication moment where they dedicate the, the, the wall, the rebuilding, the temple, sort of celebrating this, this repentance of the people, it's this huge party, it's wonderful, and it's like, there's where you end the, the book, right there. But it, it doesn't end there, because that's not the real, that's not the full story, and that's what's kind of funny about Hollywood movies, you know, like rom-coms. How many of you guys like rom-coms? Yes. I know Brian loves rom-coms. He's probably the only guy in here that'll admit it, but he loves rom-coms. A, a, ro- a romantic comedy, sorry. For the, I love. Who didn't know what it meant? <laughs> Garrett, you win today. Garrett wins. Romantic comedies, okay? That's what we're talking about here. You know, they always end with like the couple falling, like they're in love. And they end with, like, uh, you know, they're married, they kiss, and he's just like, oh, it's so wonderful. Like, they met each other under crazy circumstances, and then some sort of division, you know, broke them apart, but then love brought them back together, and you feel great about it. But the movies just end. They don't show the next morning where the new couple gets up, and the guy goes in, and he shaves his beard, and then the, the newlywed wife comes in and sees all the trimmings in the sink. She's like, what is that? And she goes downstairs and she sees the, the empty ice cream bowls that weren't put in the dishwasher. They're right by the dishwasher, but they're not in the dishwasher. I'm just talking about my life here. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't show that. Like when, when life really begins and you're living, you know, with somebody else and they start to annoy you, you know. And it's like, okay, do we really love each other? That sort of thing. Now I mean, Hollywood movies never show that. They never show the full story. But God chose to show us the full story here. He didn't hold back. Like, it doesn't have a great ending. But there's something, even in bad endings, there's often important things and important lessons for us to learn. Let me read for you chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. It says, while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem for the 32nd year of Adityrexes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here, I learned about the evil thing Elishabab had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. So I, I start there because it's important to note, you know, Nehemiah had left his position to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall and he's done that. They rebuilt the wall fast, 52 days. But then we know that he was there much longer, like 20 years. Because it said he, he, he left Jerusalem the 32nd year, and he came to Jerusalem, I believe it was the 12th year. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but he was there for years. And he's got to go back to his other job. And so he goes back to his other job under the king, and he's there for some time, and then he he goes, I'd like to go back to Jerusalem and just see how it's going. And so he travels back to Jerusalem, and he sees some very disturbing things. That the revival has stalled. I mean, there's been amazing revival amongst the people. Yes, the wall was built, the city's been restored, but the people have repented of their sin and turned back to God in an extraordinary way. People are, are turning to God and saying, I want to follow you. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for the ways I've let you down. And I want you know, to be obedient now to God's leading in my life. A whole nation of people turned to God. This, that's revival. Large groups of people repenting and turning to God. When we've seen this, but we get to 13 and Nehemiah leaves and he comes back and he sees three very disturbing things that have stalled out this revival. And I think for us today, it's not just these three things that can kind of stall revival, but they are three things that still happen today that can stall God from really breaking in to communities to large people groups, to nations, from turning completely to God. So three things I want to show you that stalled the revival. The first is legalism. Let me read for you verses 1 through 3. On the day that the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. If you just read this at face value, you're just going to be like, okay, what, is that? what does that mean? But when you look at what's happening here, you see that a new form of legalism has sort of made its way into the people. whenever someone says to you, the Bible says this, that's what we're getting here. They're reading the law, the holy scriptures, and they're saying, oh, this is what it says. Whenever someone says, this is the Bible, they quote it to you without actually reading it. You should always, for better judgment, look and say, is that really what it says? Now, what the people are referring to, what, ne- what, the, what the book of Nehemiah is referring to, is a story and a commandment given uh, in Deuteronomy 23, 3-5. Can you put that up on the screen? Because I didn't put it in my notes. I'm going to read it to you. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt, and they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor, and Aram Naharim, to announce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God will not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. Here's the backstory. That's the commandment, and that's what the people, that's what the people read, and they're saying, all right, we need to separate ourselves from all people, all people of foreign descent. Well, that's not what it says. See, the, the, the backstory of, of, of what's happening here and why God gave this commandment is the Israelites are led out of Egypt by Moses. At one point in their journey to the promised land, they find themselves having to pass through uh, Ammonite and Moabite lands, and instead of just, you know, fighting, jumping to, to, to war, they approach the Ammonites and the Moabites and they say, hey, can we pass through your land? Can we have your permission to pass through your land? And look, we're willing to pay for any water or any food that we drink in your land. Just let us pass through and we'll gladly pay you for any of the water and the food we drink. And the Ammonites and the Moabites go, no. Simply because they do not like the Israelites. And it's not that they just don't like them, they actually just hate them. And they go, you know what, how can we corrupt this group of people? They see them as as enemies. And their hearts are to destroy the Israelite people. So they say no to letting them pass through, but they go a step further and they hire Balaam. They offer Balaam large amounts of money to cast a curse on Israel. Balaam's like this sort of weird, pagan, sorcerer, mystical, kind of demonic prophet who certainly is working in the demonic and they, uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites approach him and go, we'll pay you. We want you to, to curse the people, the Israelite people. And in the story, which you can read about, uh, God approaches Balaam. He's like, no, you're not going to do that. And there's almost this amazing repentance that happens in Balaam. And a donkey talks in the story. And... And Balaam's like, oh wow, yeah, maybe maybe God's you know is trying to say something to me. And 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 so he decides I'm not going to put a curse on the people. And there's like this almost repentance, but but he gets tempted by the people. Uh, the people offer more and more money. And Balaam goes, okay, I'm not going to do the curse. God said don't curse them, but I can still probably like. Ah, thwart the people, corrupt the people, and so he comes up with a plan. Balaam's plan is this: Why don't we get them? Why don't we get the Ammonites and the Moabites to be cordial with the Israelites? And over time, what's going to happen? The younger Ammonites and Moabites and the younger Israelites are going to start looking at each other. They're going to start paying attention to each other. They're going to start hanging out with each other. And inevitably, you're going to have Ammonite and Moabite women falling for Israelite men. And you're going to have Israelite women falling for Ammonite and Moabite men. And Baal's like, I know how we can corrupt them. We corrupt them by getting them to sin. And what easier, more sly way to get them to sin than by getting them to engage in intermarriage, mixed marriage? And this is not mixed marriage in the way that we would talk about it today. This is mixed, like, when, when we're talking about mixed marriage at this time in Scripture, we're talking about the covenant people of God, the Israelite people of God, who have, been, who have been set aside to follow Yahweh, to give all of their hearts to Yahweh. This isn't about ethnic mix. This is about a believer marrying an unbeliever is probably the closest we would get to it today. But at the time, it was, look, you do not marry an Ammonite or a Moabite. Why? Because they worship pagan gods. And if you start to mix in, you know, worship of these pagan gods, you're gonna start corrupting the people. Because the people are gonna turn from Yahweh and start inviting these pagan gods. We saw it happen to Solomon. King Solomon built pagan temples to pagan gods to suffice his his wives. You get in. You want to get the people to sin? Don't tell them to sin. Get Get the fathers to say, hey, check out my daughter. Isn't she beautiful? Get the mothers to say, hey, here's my son. He's got a good job. He'll take care of your daughter. And generations will pass, and the people will, will drift further and further from God. And that's, that is what Balaam sets in motion. And that is why God is so displeased with the Ammonites and the Moabites, that they would do something so wicked. And so he says, they're not allowed in assembly up to the 10th generation. So not forever, mind you. And he doesn't say anyone, any other ethnicity or people group. He says the Ammonites and the Moabites. That's what scripture says. See, it's important to note that it was perfectly possible for non-Israelites without Abraham's blood To be adopted into the assembly. If you were willing to come under the covenant, if you were a man and you were willing to get circumcised, you could join the the Israelite assembly. In essence, you become an Israelite. It was perfectly possible to become an Israelite without having Abraham's blood under the right conditions. But what happens here, now let's go back to Nehemiah's time, is the people read that in the Deuteronomy text, and they, they decide in verse 3, when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Not just Ammonites or Moabites, everybody, you're out. If you do not have Abraham's blood running through your veins, you're out. And it's sin because they're they're not following what God says in the Bible. They're adding to it. This is what um, what D.A. Carson says about revival. He says when revival takes hold, one thing that happens is people try to become more holy than God. He tells a story of how when he was in college in the 1960s, On campus, the Marxists on campus would carry around Mao's Little Red Book. I think I have a picture of it. Now, that's not my copy, just so you know. I Google imaged it. But in the 60s, the Marxists would carry all around campus Mao's Little Red Book so that everyone could see that they're a Marxist. And D.A. Carson says, a group of, of Christians on campus got together and they said, you know, if the Marxists are going to carry around this, their little red book, well, then we're going to carry around our Bibles, because why would we not profess that the God of, uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the God of the universe, has given us this book, and it's much better than Mao's. And then it got dark. That's perfect, because it lets me get my prop. So D.A. Carson said the Christians on campus, they started to carry around their Bibles. And they would walk around campus like this. And so you would see the Marxists with the little red book, and you'd see the Christians with their Bible. D.A. Carson said that after about three weeks, he noticed something among some of the Christians. They started walking around campus with this Bible. So you really knew that they were a Christian, and look at the size of their Bible. This is not a Bible, actually. This is the uh, Audubon's Birds of America book. Look at how beautiful that book is. And his point is this. What, what can tend to happen when it, when it is, uh, see, when it's not favorable to be a Christian, that never happens. But when you find yourselves in, in environments where it's cool, where it's favorable to be a Christian, you almost certainly are going to get people going, look how big my Bible is. Look how holy I am. And instead of falling under the grace of God, they begin to throw themselves on rules and regulations to make themselves feel holier than they really are or holier than God. It's why, you know, you used to have a Sabbath law. Do not work on the Sabbath. But the rabbis in Jesus' day added 39 categories of prohibitive work as if it wasn't enough, God. We tend to want to make ourselves feel holier than we really are. And when people try to be more holy than God, it is another form of legalism. And it will destroy revival. And we see the cracks of legalism make their way in the revival of Nehemiah's day. So legalism. The second thing is nepotism. Which is a, a, a fancy word for favoritism in family. Blood relations become more important than the blood of the covenant. Let me read for you verses 4 through 9. Before this, Elisha. The priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, important to to mention. When when it says closely associated to Tobiah, closely associate is an idiom which very likely, almost certainly meant that they were related through marriage. Brother-in-law, probably. Uh, he was closely associated with Tobiah and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed by the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. Okay, so what's happening here? Here is Elisha, who's in charge of the storerooms of the temple. And the temple, look, this is, this is the place where God and man meet. It, it's of vital importance that it's, it's kept well. And they have set aside these rooms for the necessary uh, resources to be used in the worship of God. God has said, this is how it should be, and this is how it should be. And Elisha is in charge of making sure that it is how it's supposed to be. Well, what happens he ends up clearing out some of the rooms in the temple and giving it to Tobiah to sort of shack up in and work out of and live out of. Okay, this is Tobiah. This is the guy who earlier was mocking the Israelites for rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah 4.3 says, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down the wall of stones. You know, archaeology has uncovered the wall, and it's nine feet thick. Some fox. (laughs) But here's Tobiah, who's mocking the Israelites, who wants to see their failure, and now is being given a room in the temple. Are you kidding me? See, this is a guy, Tobiah, who just wants to be on the winning side. When, Israel, when Jerusalem was tattered and, and, and everyone's like looking and going, "There's no way that can be rebuilt." Tobiah loves to be there and going, "Yeah, they're going to fail. I want to be on the winning side." So let's mock and ridicule. Well, now, everything's changed. The wall's rebuilt, the city is being rebuilt, it's becoming a prosperous place, and Tobiah wants to be on the winning side. He goes, you know, if I could get an apartment in the middle of the city, there's gonna be opportunity for prosperity. So he goes to his brother-in-law and says, you know, can you get me a place? And he goes, oh, I, well, yeah, I'll clear out some of the temple, storerooms for you to live in. I mean, this is a dis. It's, it's a despising of the temple of God. It is colluding with the enemy because we've, we, we do not see Tobiah repent. Maybe he did, but we, it's not, we're not told. It's likely he had not repented. So it's colluding with the enemy, and it's, it's nepotism. It's showing favoritism and doing something for a family member sinfully, And it's an important, like, I think, powerful lesson. Like, it is very possible for us to sin against God by doing or justifying what you think are acts of love for a family member to help get them ahead. You ever lied about your kids? Just maybe added a little bit to the story in front of others just to make them look better? You ever, you know, used money? In some form or fashion, maybe get your kids on a team that they shouldn't, you know, be on or in a class or just into something that, you know, they didn't deserve or they're not qualified for. You ever pulled strings for a family member? Have you sinned for the betterment of your family? it's perfectly possible. And I think what happens is we think to ourselves, well, it's love, and I'm supposed to love my family, and I love them more than anyone else, and I want the best for my family. But we cross lines, we sin, and we don't even blink because we're doing it in the name of love. It's no wonder that Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We read that and we just sort of go, oh, I don't like that. I don't like what Jesus is saying there. Something feels like gross about it. But here's what he's saying. He's not saying hate your family. He's not saying that. He's saying this. When it comes to ultimate allegiance between you and Jesus or you and your family, Jesus and allegiance to Jesus always wins. Always You have to choose to follow Jesus first, always. You have to choose to love Jesus first, always. And when you begin to mix the order up, you get in trouble. And be very careful because it is very easy to to justify sin for the sake of family and the people that we love most. But nepotism, that sort of sin, will destroy Revival, because nepotism we see triumphed in this case over faithfulness and obedience to God. The third, I was trying to find a an ism because I had legalism, nepotism, and then disobedienceism. <laughs> That's the closest I can get, but I, I couldn't come up with an ism. Disobedience, just ultimately disobeying God. Look at verses ten. Through 11. I learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked, why is the house of God neglected? I called them together and stationed in the anthropos. So the, the house of God is being neglected. Look at verse 15 through 17. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grade and loading it on donkeys together with wines, grapes, figs, and all kinds of other loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. They're breaking, they're being disobedient to God by working on the Sabbath. And then 23, moreover in those days I saw men of Judah who married women from Ashdod, Amam, and Mobed. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of those other people and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Then it gets really intense here and weird. I rebuked them and called curses down to them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Can you imagine if I would have done that with the children serving? <laughs> yeah, and it would not go over well. But ultimately, they're breaking. God's like, I don't want you guys doing that intermarriage with, that, with those good people. And, that, and they're having And ultimately, what's happening is the people have decided to disobey God. They're not looking at the law and living in the way that God called them to live. And it's simple and powerful as this. Sin separates us from God. If you're experiencing revival, there's a closeness. a, dr- a, a a drawing in toward God. But revival is squashed when we love sin more than God. The invitation is always there to repent and turn back to God. But when you love sin, it's almost impossible to even see it. And if you don't see it, you're not going to turn from it. You know, I don't. have you ever been to like a party or some sort of gathering with people and you, you, you said something and you're driving home later that night or you're laying in bed and you, you replay it back in your mind and you go, why did I say that? Oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. It's so embarrassing. You ever felt that? You ever felt that and, and you feel the shame? It happens to me all the time. You feel the shame. And I, so I go, if you've had that happen to you, Before whom are you feeling that shame? The people that you were with, you feel, you know, you feel shame because you know I said I embarrassed myself. I said you know something stupid in front of them. My question is, do we ever lay in bed and feel shame and embarrassment for the things that we've done against God? Why don't we? See, if if our hearts are not open to conviction, we squash revival. This is why we are called to pray that the Holy Spirit would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. There needs to be a conviction, an opening of the heart for people's eyes to be open to sin in their life. And if you're not willing to look, if you're just ignoring it, You're walking farther from God. Nehemiah got it. He comes back. He tries to fix things. He sees what's wrong. He tries to make them right. Um, He knows what's most important. Not that the wall was rebuilt, that Jerusalem is a prosperous city. He knew that what was most important is that people's relationship with God were, were in right and good standing. But what does the failure of the people tell us? The revival was not deep enough. You know, why didn't it take hold? Why did it fall apart so easily? And I think the lesson is this. Men and women can only bring you so far. Nehemiah was an amazing leader. He did almost everything right. He's a leader to look up to. But he couldn't do enough to create forever change in all the people. You know, I always think it's so interesting to watch elections and, and politicians and how groups of people get behind a politician and they just put all their hopes on this individual and their belief is, that if we just get this person into office, things will change. Things will be better. And then if their person wins, they're celebrating and they're excited and they go, finally, you know, we're going to be restored and life is going to be good again and problems are going to be solved. And then What happens? Maybe that candidate, that politician, does a few things. But the brokenness still remains. I have yet to see a president fix everything. Because one person can only do so much. And at the end of the day, only Jesus can fix the brokenness. Only Jesus can fix the broken areas in our heart. Only Jesus can bring healing to the land. No pastor, no politician, no community leader, no teacher can do what Jesus can do. Nehemiah did great. But he was never going to be able to do what a better Nehemiah would come along later and do. Jesus. And redeem and forgive the people. So ultimately, we have eternal life. See, the story had a bad ending, and you look around, and we're still kind of living in a bad ending at times. But the hope of Christ is that we have a good ending in our future. Redemption, eternal life, death's defeat, no more sin, no more tears, no more disease. That is your future for those of you who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. That is an amazing ending. And you're invited to have that ending in your life if you're willing to turn to Christ. We're going to take communion together. I'm going to invite the band up. I want to read for you out of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 26. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.